All right, so this morning um, we are returning to our exposition um, in the book of Genesis. We actually started that journey back in August of last year and made it through to chapter 36 by early July. And for the rest of the summer, we took a break and did some short series. And so now we're back, um, beginning in chapter 37, and the plan tentatively is to finish Genesis before Christmas. So Genesis is a book of beginnings. It's the, it records the beginning of the world, right? The creation of the world. Um, in the beginning, God created everything. The beginning of humankind. We're made in God's image. We're not made to be alone, but we're made for relationship with God and with one another. Uh, we're also made to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God. Sadly, Genesis also records the beginning of sin and its effects, filling the world with injustice and violence and pride and selfishness and strife. But it's also the beginning of God's redemptive mission. So even in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, there's a promise of the seed of the woman that's going to come and crush the serpent's head. So there's good news even in, on the darkest day, um, the fall of humanity. And then God actually sacrifices an animal to clothe Adam and Eve, covering their shame and nakedness and guilt. So um, Noah and the patriarchs, the beginning of God making a new people for himself. So through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these patriarchs. And now chapter 37 marks a transition to the final key character in this, the book of beginnings, um, the character of Joseph. So in chapter 37, you can turn there now if you're not there already. Um, you can find that on page 31 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some in the, the Pew rack in front of you, the black Bible's there, and just turn to page 31 and you'll be in the right spot. So <clears throat> in 37, 1-2, to we read, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan, these are the generations. That's kind of a key term in the book of Genesis. Um, ten times it says these are the generations of, and this is the last of those ten markers. And um, so this is the final section of the book of Genesis, and it's going to focus on Jacob's son, Joseph. Um, so he is introduced here in verse 2. <clears throat> And um, if it's helpful, there's an outline in the bulletin. You can follow along or the, the points will be up on the slide. So first what we're going to do, point number one, is the favored hated son. We're going to actually just walk through the whole chapter, okay? Walk through the whole text. And then points two, three, and four are kind of some points we're going to draw from the passage um, for implications, application, understanding what's going on here. All right? So first off, the favored hated son. Let's just read the story here, and I'll stop and make a few points here and there to kind of um, highlight some things or unpack some things. All right? So these are the generations of Jacob, and it then speaks to his sons. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. 
And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So that didn't really help as far as family relations, okay? And we're not exactly sure what to make of this bad report. Usually this term carries some negative connotations, like it could be a slanderous report or distorted information. So that's possible. It could be that Joseph kind of um, tattled on his brothers and maybe even made them look really bad, which is good reason for them to not be too keen on him. Um, commentators are kind of divided on this. But as we get to know his brothers, they're kind of a, you know, nasty crew. So it's quite possible that at least part of this report was very valid. Uh, maybe all of it was valid. Um, so anyway, it's a bad report. It certainly didn't help the relationship between Joseph and his brothers. But there's more reason why there was strife between the brothers. Look at verse 3. Now Israel, that's Jacob, remember he wrestled with God and God renamed him Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Favoritism. Because he was the son of his old age and he was the son of Jacob's dear beloved wife, Rachel. And he made him a robe of many colors. Um, most likely that term actually is like a a coat with long sleeves. Um, we get this coat of many colors thing actually from um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. So most likely that's not what this refers to. It's just long sleeve, which is probably a robe that has um, connotations of authority. So if this is the favored son, even though he's young, Jacob could be saying he's the heir. He is the one that's going to really inherit the blessing. And so, again, that's reason for the brothers to be jealous of him, to be angry with him. Um, they don't like him. So, sorry, the Technicolor dream coat is probably not, you know, rooted in the Hebrew scriptures. But anyway, um, verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. You know, I mean, Jews greet each other all the time. Shalom. Peace. Couldn't, couldn't talk like that to him. Um, rah, 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 you know, like every interaction. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So you're trying to piece this together. Like we, we can only go so far with kind of recreating the picture, but it's kind of like, okay, the dream was from God, but did you really need to tell it? You know, isn't that kind of like pouring salt in the wound? Isn't that kind of like turning the knife? Well, I don't know. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him 
but his father kept the saying in mind. So, as we go along in Genesis, there's going to be dreams that come in pairs. And usually when they come in pairs, it means that this is going to happen. It is fixed, and it's not going to be undoable. So, two times here. And even though Jacob rebuked him, he also kept it in mind because, you know what? Given the place of dreams in his life, he should maybe realize that maybe God is saying something here and it would be foolish to fight against it. So the brothers are certainly fighting against it, but the father is keeping it in mind, kind of like Mary with what was said about Jesus, right? All right, so his brothers went to the pasture for their father's flock near Shechem. This is kind of like part two of the story. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Seventeen years old. This is 50 miles. And he's by himself. So, long way. Joseph is very willing. Um, again, is it like, see if they're, you know, bring me back a bad report if they're, if they're being bad? I, I don't know. Just checking on them. Maybe he's bringing supplies to them. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? And Joseph said, I'm seeking my brothers. And he said, tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away, for I've heard them say, let us go to Dothan. This is like another 14, 15 miles further north. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. So now you were looking at this story from Joseph's perspective. Now the camera angle shifts and we see it from the perspective of the brothers. They saw him from afar and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. It's like Cain and Abel revisited. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal, literally an evil beast, has devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And he said this because he wanted to rescue him out of their hand and to restore him to his father. Now, Reuben was the firstborn. Okay? So primary responsibility would be on him, but also, if you remember, or if you were here, Back in chapter 35, Reuben is out of favor with his father because he slept with his father's concubine. So even though he's the firstborn, which usually that's the one that should inherit the, the, you know, the blessing and, and the majority of the inheritance, he's kind of disqualified himself and he's out of favor. So maybe he thinks, maybe I can get back into dad's good graces if I do this, or maybe it was just you know, a genuine heart of compassion for his brother? We don't know. But when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe with the long sleeves that he wore, 
And they took him and threw him into a pit. It's a cistern. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. There's no way he's going to be able to get out of this. It had a narrow entrance and it opened up down below. So he's not getting out of this. And then look at this, verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. Cold, cold hearted. Who are the real evil beasts in this passage? They sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Oh, so much compassion. So what is this? Like, again, there's so many questions that just aren't answered. Is this cold-hearted opportunism? Like, let's at least get some money for this guy. Is it guilt-ridden shrewdness that's kind of like a calculated strategy to salve his conscience and save his brother? But if he went too far, if he was too nice, then his brothers wouldn't listen. So, you know, we'll at least just go this far. They'll go for it. We don't know. So, continue, his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders, so Midianite's a more specific term, Ishmaelite's the broader term, same group. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, which we know from ancient history is the going rate in the second millennium B.C. for a slave. And those traders took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, so apparently he must have gone on an errand to maybe attend to the flocks or whatever, he comes back, he tears his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe. So obviously there's a white space there. They must have discussed this and decided. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. An evil beast has devoured him. Same term. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son Many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to the grave to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Okay, so here's this favored, hated, hated son. Just two quick points before we move on to the sad irony that we see here. First off, did you notice that he's 17 years old? I just thought I would draw attention to that and say to the teenagers in the room, I was one at one time, and I was bullied and Others of you may be, 
There's a lot of different ways we can be mistreated and how that impacts us can be pretty significant. And if you know the whole story, it's just interesting how Joseph processes all of that. So to know that someone has kind of walked in your shoes and, and suffered some serious mistreatment. Like the Bible speaks to everybody, not just adults, but teenagers as well. So if you have been on the receiving end of unfair suffering, Joseph knows what it feels like. You know, in, in Hebrews 11, it talks about this great cloud of witnesses. So we, we've got to run the race that's set before us, and sometimes we don't like what's set before us, but we run, run with this great cloud surrounding us. What are they doing? Watching? They're cheering. They've got a message for you because they suffered and they made it. God was faithful to them, and he can be to you as well with whatever you go through. So his example can be helpful, powerful for all of us, but I think there might be a specific word here to teenagers. Secondly, Joseph is also testimony to the fact that God can redeem and use mightily someone who comes from a totally messed up background, totally dysfunctional family, and again, evil mistreatment. So this world is a mess, right? There's a lot of backgrounds that are a mess. A lot of you grew up in a mess. Maybe you're in a mess right now. And God hadn't abandoned Joseph. He was with him. And we'll see how he's with him through some crazy twists and turns that I'm sure to Joseph did not seem to make sense. Like, where are you? I'm trying to be faithful to you, and I end up in prison. Again, I don't want to, you know, get ahead of ourselves here. But again, he is testimony that God can redeem and use mightily someone who comes from a really dysfunctional background. Um, this household was a mess. It was like, should be on Jerry Springer, you know? So, all right. <clears throat> now, point number two, sad irony. Um, two points here. There's irony in the favoritism, and there's irony in the deception. Okay, it's kind of like bookends to the chapter. <clears throat> so at the beginning of the chapter, verse 3, we see that Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Isn't that sad? And isn't it a sad irony <laughs> that Jacob shows favoritism and loves this son more than his brothers? Now, again, of course, we understand that Joseph was the son of Rachel, the woman he loved, and he had been deceived by Laban, you know, to be given Leah and all of that. But you'd have thought he would have learned his lesson from his own experience in his home with his father who favored his brother and not him. So Genesis 25, 28 says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And that favoritism, like a house divided, it just wreaked all kinds of havoc in the home that he grew up in. It was a divided house. So sad irony that Jacob follows in those same missteps. Second sad irony is the deception that happens at the end of the chapter. So when the brothers sell Joseph, they decide to deceive their father with blood from a goat. Why is that ironic? Because Jacob 
deceived his father by slaughtering some goats, <laughs> right? In order to obtain a blessing. So he pretended to be Esau. Esau is this hairy man. He's a smooth man. So he had to take those goat skins and put them on his arms. So a goat, goats were killed to make that game, that tasty stew, and the skins were put on to deceive his father. Same thing here. The deceiver is being deceived. It's a sad irony. I mean, aren't we, this isn't anything new. We've seen it over and over and over again. Familial patterns of sin. Generational sin. Doesn't that happen today? This is nothing new. But thankfully, God can work through that. He can break those cycles. But we do have to ask as we read through this chapter, where is God? <laughs> Did you notice that there's no mention of him in this whole chapter? Kind of like the book of Esther. So point number three, where is God? Certainly there's an indirect pointer in Joseph's dreams. I mean, where did they come from? They came from God. And we've seen a number of times already in the book of Genesis, like Jacob with the ladder and other dreams where God is revealing things to his people through these dreams. But where is God? I mean, look at all this mess and this human evil. Is it going to thwart God's plan? No, it's actually accomplishing it. So God's mighty providence, invisible as it is, oftentimes, is at work behind the scenes here. So we'll eventually get there, but flip ahead to Genesis 45. Look at how Joseph talks about what happened after he's reunited with his brothers many years later. Genesis 45, 7 and 8. So he reveals himself to his brothers. They're totally shocked because they didn't realize that this, you know, prime minister of Egypt was actually the brother that they sold into slavery years before. And so instead of just killing them or torturing them or throwing them in prison, Joseph forgives them. And he says in verse 7, God sent me before you. God sent me. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So where is God? He is totally at work behind the scenes, accomplishing his purposes. And yeah, his timetable is way different than ours. But wait for it. He is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So they conspired to kill, and then they didn't kill him, but they sold him. But isn't it ironic that Joseph, <laughs> their sin ended up saving them. Him going ahead of them to Egypt ends up putting Egypt in a position where food would be saved so that they, when the famine hit, would be preserved. They wanted to kill him. God used that sin to save them. Like crazy incredible mercy and grace. And then the final punchline, Genesis 50, verse 20. Flip over there. 
just near the end of the whole book. And here's what Joseph says again. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. He didn't just clean it up for good. He meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So I'm sure Joseph had his struggles, you know, to believe that God was with him. And I'm sure it was a roller coaster like it is for us. But ultimately, he came to see that the truth of Romans 8, 28 is true, where he could say, no, 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 it wasn't ultimately you that sent me here. God did this. And it was for his good purposes, and he brought, brought it all about. You couldn't thwart his plan. You actually unknowingly served his plan. So God somehow comforted Joseph through all those trials and helped him see this. And so that sad irony turned into sweet irony that the brothers conspired to kill the one who would ultimately save them. Isn't that like a sweet, that, that's what God's providence does. It just turns things, you know, what you intended for good or for evil, God intends it for good. So Joseph was comforted and then isn't the story of Joseph comforting don't you think it would have comforted the Israelites in Egypt? Like, God can turn this for good? Or Israelites in exile? Wait, it seems like God's abandoned us, but maybe he's working, hidden, invisible, silently. We need to wait for him, trust him. And then aren't you glad? I mean, how many times do we go back to this story? Because it's so encouraging um, that God can work through this kind of mess. I mean, aren't you glad this story is in the Bible? So along with Job, innocent suffering, kind of from a cosmic level, you know, um, Satan causing all kinds of suffering, and then Joseph suffering innocently on account of the unrighteousness of men and, and a woman, Potiphar's wife. But all of this really just is kind of a signpost, a pointer to the greatest illustration of God turning evil for good. Joseph is, is a pointer himself to the ultimate rescuer. Okay, so that brings us to our final point, Christ and comfort. So where is God in this broken, messed up world that is full of suffering? And maybe your broken, messed up life that's full of suffering. Where is God in all that? Well, he's not aloof. He's not indifferent. He's entering into our suffering. Where's God in the midst of the broken, evil, wicked, messed up nature of this world? Well, hanging on a cross to rescue us from ourselves and from the sin of others against us. So Jesus was willingly conspired against in order to rescue us and bring us ultimate and eternal comfort. So turn, actually, I want you to see these two passages in Acts. Look at the interpretation of what happened on the cross in Acts 2 and Acts 4. This is the ultimate example of evil for good. 
meant and intended for good. So Acts 2.23, Peter's preaching. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What they intended for evil, God intended for good. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And then skip ahead to Acts 4.27. So the believers are praying here. Once um, Peter's released from prison, When they were released, and others as well. Okay, so when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said. And then the church just starts to, to pray, praise God. And then look in verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do not what they intended ultimately, but to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So it's ultimately God's intention. All this evil that surrounds the cross, you know, kangaroo court, totally unjust, you know, talk about innocent suffering, but all of it was to bring about the ultimate good, to bring about salvation and rescue from sin, to save many people alive forever. Okay, so this is God's character. <laughs> he did it in Genesis with Joseph. You know, mankind intends evil. God works it for good. He did it ultimately in the cross. But we see this over and over again throughout history. So one illustration, I love the story of um, a Patuxet Indian named Tisquantum. You guys know this story? Probably familiar with it. Around 1608, he was a boy, uh, Patuxet tribe, and one day, more than 10 years before the pilgrims arrived, some English traders came ashore near his home. When members of his tribe came out to trade, they were taken prisoner and carried to Spain and sold as slaves. So this horrific, you know, wicked evil of human trafficking, slave trade. So Tisquantum was bought by a kind Spanish monk, and the man treated him well, taught him their language and about the God of the Bible. And this young Indian, he obviously wanted to go home, so the monks eventually sent him to London, England, because that's where you could catch one of these ships that would be sailing across the Atlantic. So Tisquantum was sent to a merchant named John Slaney, and Slaney was sympathetic to his desire to return home, and he promised to eventually get him on a ship to return there. So Slaney warned him that it could take a while, okay? There weren't, you know, multiple flights back and forth, you know, every day between uh, Heathrow and wherever. Um, so he said, you can live with us. 
we're going to teach you English, and Slaney thought that maybe Tisquantum could serve as a translator to pay for his passage. Okay, so it took five years, but a ship was eventually found, and he's on his way home. So ten years later, he arrives back at his home, and his whole tribe is wiped out. They were victims of an epidemic that just, there were no survivors. Village totally wiped out. So can you imagine being in his shoes, like the questions of why? Why in the first place? And now why? Like all of this crazy circuitous route, I get home and everybody's dead. And I've been hearing about this God. So he struggled deeply. He went, lived with another tribe, and then moved off and just lived in the woods by himself. And there was a man named Samoset from another village that visited him, and he told Tisquantum that there was a shipload of English families that had arrived and settled right where he had grown up. So Tisquantum went to meet them, and he greeted them in English. So you can imagine their surprise. <laughs> where, where did this come from? So one of those pilgrims was Governor William Bradford. And in his diary, he wrote of Tisquantum, he became a special instrument sent of God for our good. He showed us how to plant our corn, where to take fish and to procure other commodities, and was also our pilot to bring us to unknown places for our profit and never left us till he died. So the first winter without Squanto's help before they connected um, had taken a heavy toll on that small band of pilgrims. Half of them died. The autumn after Squanto had lived with them, the pilgrims decided to have a special time of giving thanks to God. They invited Squanto and Semoset's tribe to join them, and 90 warriors came carrying game and all kinds of vegetables, and they had a great feast, and you kind of know where it goes from there, right? When Squanto lay dying, Bradford also wrote that he desired the governor to pray for him that he might go to the Englishman's God in heaven. So what those wicked Spanish traders intended for evil. So I'm not endorsing imperialism. I'm not saying anything about the mistreatment of Native Americans here. Like that is real and a whole different conversation. But I'm just saying with this situation, those wicked Spanish traders intended for evil, God intended for good to preserve many people alive and to preserve Squanto's soul. And God can do that same kind of thing in your life. So I, I love this quote by Samuel Rutherford. He's got this little book. Um, I think it's actually compiled little nuggets from his letters um, and his writings. Um, he lived a few hundred years ago. And it's compiled into a book called The Loveliness of Christ. I've given it away a few times. Um, and he says this in that book. He says, It's impossible to be submissive and patient with God if you stay your thoughts down among the confused rollings and wheels of second causes as, Oh, the place. Oh, the time. Oh, if this had been. If this had not followed. Oh, the linking of this accident with this time and place. And he says, instead, look up to the master motion and the first wheel. I know that's kind of older language, but 
Do you see how important that is? It is so easy for us to get hung up down here and to just almost be paralyzed by just frustration and complaint. And again, some of that is righteous because there's some ugly, nasty things that happen. But ultimately, we can trust that God is not asleep at the switch. He is working all things together for good. We need to look up to the master motion and the first wheel and trust him because the brothers were conspiring for evil. God was conspiring for good and for eternal comfort. That is what he is conspiring for for us. I love these verses in 2 Thessalonians. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In the midst of and through the, the mess and the twists and the turns and the rollings and wheels of second causes that oftentimes bring all kinds of pain and trial. So let me just close with a poem that I've, I've quoted before, but it's such a powerful poem. It's William Cooper. Um, it looks like Cowper, but it's pronounced Cooper, C-O-W-P-E-R. Um, he, he actually really struggled with depression, suicidal thoughts. John Newton, the slave trader turned Christian pastor. It's a whole nother Genesis 50-20 scenario, right? Who wrote Amazing Grace. Brought him into his house and cared for him so that he wouldn't kill himself because he struggled so much with depression and he also wrote some really powerful poetry and there's a number of hymns that we have that are a result of his work. This one's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. So I'll close with this and then we'll transition to the table. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose, purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. So this table here is evidence of the fact that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The darkest day of human history, when everything went black at noon because the Son of God was being crucified, that frowning providence, it seemed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
was actually all so that God's smiling face could be turned on us. We deserve his rejection. But instead, in Christ, we receive his smile, his approval, his acceptance, justified by faith. So if you know that acceptance, not because of anything that you've done, but because of everything that Jesus has done, see, that bitter providence turned into beautiful grace and good news. And God can continue to give grace because we are in Christ to turn whatever bitter providence you're walking through right now into more grace, blessings on your head. And maybe those blessings don't, we don't experience them until eternity. But compared to eternity, this is a blip on the screen. It's a vapor. So that's why Paul says in Romans 8.18, Tyler started with it when he read Romans 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. So again, as we wait, we are reminded of how God works at this table, and we can receive grace to continue to trust him and wait as he works his sovereign will until everything is made new and everything comes clear. Right? So if the men who are going to be serving can come forward, um, I'll pray, and then we'll distribute the elements. And if you can hold them both until everyone's served, then uh, we'll partake together. So again, if, if you're not a Christian, you're here and you're wondering about all these things, we're really glad you're here. You can just let the elements pass. There's no shame in that at all. So this meal is for those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior. Um, but again, we would love to, to talk with you, follow up with you. If you have any questions, happy to, to discuss these matters more. This is the most important stuff in the world. So let's pray, and then we'll um, prepare our hearts to participate in the Lord's table. Oh God, thank you for your mighty providence and your sweet, sweet grace. Oftentimes it comes through very bitter circumstances, but Lord, would you please enable us to see your greater plan and trust your heart. And we thank you that this table is a regular reminder of how you take what is intended by human beings for evil and you intend good, the greatest good, the work of Christ on the cross the source of all other good that we have as your people. But also, this is your pattern, and we thank you for revealing that to us in the life of Joseph and Squanto and so many of us in this room experiencing that same dynamic. So, Lord, please help us to trust you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.